Thanks for joining us. Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Welcome to the podcast. You are now tuned in to this episode of our podcast. Today we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. And now, please welcome your host. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. Welcome back to the program, Mom. Zev Brenner, it's always an honor, always a treat, always a privilege to speak to David Schoen. He is one of the top attorneys in the country. He's a civil rights attorney. He's a criminal defense attorney. He's represented so many interesting personalities from former President Donald Trump at the impeachment hearings. He also represents Steve Bannon and also Julia Hart and many other interesting personalities. So, David, good to have you back on the program. Thanks so much. It's always great to be here with you. Thank you. So I know that the President of the United States, former President Donald Trump, has been indicted. Uh, He has a legal team. You were part of the legal team before. Are you going to be part of the legal team now? I don't think so. I'm kind of in regular contact with him and uh, discuss the issues, kind of, uh, you know, attorney-client privilege uh, still, but uh, I don't think I don't think so. I don't think this is a team for me, really. But uh, we'll see how it plays out. But I think the president probably wants you. He liked what you did. Didn't he tell you last time you didn't want to do it, then he got you to do it? Huh. I just wasn't sure last time in the impeachment because it was a little, you know, it was a very short time frame and all of that. But no, I have a great relationship with him. He's always very, very gracious with me and complimentary, and he says a lot of nice things publicly about me, which I really appreciate. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think this case is horrendous that they brought against him. I think it's complete perversion of the criminal justice system. And I certainly hope for him and for the country that he wins. Now, from your perspective, from what I've been reading, this should be really be a misdemeanor, not a felony. It's a federal issue, not a state issue, but they're, they're really mixing everything up. So how could this be where you can mix up different jurisdictions and go past the statute of limitations and come up with a charge and and be upheld yeah. by the courts. How could this be? I, I don't think they can, actually. First of all, you know, as a matter of policy, why would you? Why would you take a convoluted sort of, you know, cockamamie charge crafted together like this and bring it for the first time ever against a former president of the United States? I mean, that's just bad policy, and it makes people lose faith in the justice system. But the way they're rigging it technically is this. Under New York law, it's Section 175.05, it's a misdemeanor to falsify business records. So their theory is he made false entries on the records as to payments made to Michael Cohn, which were to reimburse him for payments Cohn supposedly made to Stormy Daniels. That's the misdemeanor. That's got a two-year statute of limitations. They're trying to make it a felony under 175.10 that says if you committed that misdemeanor, falsifying records, and you did it with the intent to commit or conceal another crime, then you've committed a felony with a five-year statute of limitations. In this case, we haven't seen the indictment yet, but the theory they've been talking about generally is the second crime was by paying money to Stormy to reimburse Cohen, who paid Stormy Daniels. It was really a campaign contribution because it was to shut down Stormy Daniels from hurting the election campaign. But it's just the, there's so many holes in it. If the payment if the payment was made and it was made for another reason, like you know didn't want his wife to find out or some other embarrassing. Uh, you know, situate, to avoid another embarrassing situation, then they must find him not guilty, for example. But statute of limitations you raised, it's another whole issue. New York has a very odd statute that says um, it's 
Criminal Procedure Law 30.10 and subsection 4A, it says that um, if a person, first of all, you have two years to bring a misdemeanor, five years to bring a felony. But if a person is continuously outside the state, then all of that period, the person continuously outside the state is excluded from that five-year period. So, and there's a case from 1999 called People versus Noble that upheld that statute. But what it, the case says is this statute was fully intended to deal with a situation when it's difficult to apprehend a suspect who's out of state because it's hard to find that person. That's not the case with the president of the United States. They knew where he was all along. There's no basis here for tolling or stopping the statute of limitations from running. And you can see how it hurts. Seven years later, you don't have the notes you had then. You don't have the recollection of conversations. Witnesses might not be around and so on. So on every level, this case never should have been brought. They say, you know, well, no person is above the law and the rule of law is so important. They've actually put partisan politics above the rule of law here, in my opinion. And that's something I don't think the Constitution can stand. Now, you mentioned something that is meant if you're out of the state for five years, so they don't really count it. But that's a kind of situation, I would guess, where the person never showed up in New York State. In the case of President Donald Trump, he's come to New York maybe not as often as he used to, but he was there within the five-year period. Right, so you're thinking like a lawyer, and you've raised a good point, because the statute says continuously outside the state. But a court so far has said, well, that doesn't really mean continuously. What it means is every day you're outside the state is excluded. So they can count up, you know, 15 days, and then you're in the state for a month. Oh, so that month counts. Then they'll count 15 days again, and they subtract all of those days that you were out of the state from the five-year period. So if you were out of the state a total of two years, that extends the statute of limitation by two years. It's complete nonsense. It's, it's ridiculous. It treats you know, uh, people who have summer homes or something like differently for purposes of criminal liability and other people. It makes no sense on any level. Has it ever been challenged in court? It was challenged in court, but by a person uh, who was you know, difficult to find. A person who's a fugitive. And that's just not the case here. What the cases make absolutely clear that the full focus of the statute was to, was to uh, deal with a situation where a person is difficult to find and therefore hard to apprehend because they're out of state. Now, I read an interesting article which says that, the, listen, there are various cases that they want to indict former President Donald Trump on. You have the Georgia case. You have the January 6th. This is probably the, the least likely to succeed or the least probable case but the theory that I read was is that they're purposely bringing this to test the reaction and see what Republicans, what the voters, how far they'll get before they go to Georgia or to January 6th, which is a much stronger case. Yeah, I've seen the same articles, and there's something to that theory, I think. On the other hand, I think some people say there was a race to see who would be the first to indict him. And so that's one reason the New York DA you know, plowed ahead, because it's just you know two weeks ago that Bob Costello in New York went into the grand jury and testified, they didn't want him to, but he tested, he came forward on his own and testified that he was a lawyer for Michael Cohen, who the case centered around. And there, as a lawyer for Michael Cohen, he told Cohen, tell me now anything you have against Trump, whether it's with Stormy Daniels, McDougal woman, anything else, so that you can help yourself, help yourself, make a deal, stay out of jail. And then Michael Cohen told him there's nothing he has that would create any liability for Trump as to any of those things or any other matter. And now last week on Monday, Bob Costello found some old notes contemporaneously made at the time, June 13th, 2018, and he sent those notes to the district attorney's office. But they still, you know, indicted. They heard from another witness and so on. So 
But there's all kinds of problems with it. The Originally, they hired a special prosecutor, a guy named Mark Pomerantz, from private practice. And some big law firms were funding this thing, putting associates on the investigation. He ended up quitting because he didn't think there was a commitment to go after Trump. But in, he's written a book about it now. In his book, he says that a woman named Giulietta Lozano, who is the head of the uh, Economic Crimes Bureau in the DA's office, said she would never believe a thing that Michael Cohn ever said, ever. He quotes Bragg as saying, the district attorney Bragg is saying, he could never imagine an indictment with Michael Cohn as a witness. So there are all of these problems. One other problem that really hasn't been talked about much is when Bragg ran for DA, he has all of these quotes in which he says, whoever gets this job, is that person going to be able to convict Donald Trump? He has the most experience going after Donald Trump. It's completely inappropriate, ethically and otherwise, for a district attorney as a candidate to run on a platform of going after some particular citizen and not only investigating them, but getting a conviction against them. So will the courts overrule the DA in this particular case? I know there's some motions that are in the process. Either they're filed or going to be filed. So is it all likely that they will overturn this? That will never see the light of day as far as a courtroom is concerned? I'm not confident in this judge. Uh, I think this judge is a proven track record of being very anti-Trump on everything. But yes, I think motions will be filed, I'm sure, to uh, disqualify Mr. Bragg or dismiss the indictment based on his conflict and that the unethical behavior. Um, you know, other motions to dismiss will be filed, statute of limitations and so on. But what about the rule of law? Are we losing the rule of law? Because if they can do this to a former president, well, you like Donald Trump or don't like him, there has to be a level playing field when dealing with law, with legal matters. If they get away with this, I think, doesn't put everybody at risk? I think so. And, and by the way, you know, the ABA, American Bar Association standards on the prosecution function say, first of all, you can never let politics run a prosecution. But secondly, you have to evaluate other factors including public confidence in the system. You've got, in this case, people as diverse as Andrew Cuomo or Bill Barr coming out and saying, this is a terrible, terrible idea. It makes it ruins the integrity of the system. It makes the American people lose confidence in the system. You know, these are not exactly Trump lovers. So if it succeeds in going to trial, we're talking about it can go past the 2024 elections, correct? Between all the delays and all the usual means of getting something back into the court calendar, right? For all intended purposes, it can be way beyond the election. This could be a cloud over the former president. Ordinarily, yes. But again, with this judge, he does whatever, in my experience at least, he favors the prosecution, so they want to push the case forward. They've had all the time they wanted to investigate and prepare the case, and so they try to shortchange the defense on uh, time to prepare, time to prepare motions, and for trial. So I could see this judge, you know, setting a trial within 10 months or a year before the elections. Wow. So is there any judicial oversight? I, mean, if, if I know there's going to make an appeal, but it seems to me that what everybody's saying that goes against the rule of law, against prevailing rules, are just tacking on one statue upon a statue and trying to create a case going way beyond what's normally the norm. So is there any recourse? Because we seem to be losing our civil rights in this country. Yeah, there's very limited, very limited opportunities for taking an appeal before the case is concluded, called an interlocutory appeal. There are certain circumstances. For example, if they move to disqualify the judge, they could file a, base, a motion for you know immediate review by the court of appeals. Um, 
But in terms of, you know, generally motions to dismiss, it can only be appealed after there's been a trial and a conviction. So that, that's difficult. And you end up wasting a lot of money and time. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this one. But, you know, what, if it goes to a jury, then anything can happen. David Schoen is our guest, one of the top lawyers in the country, civil rights attorney, special criminal defense. He has some very interesting clients, including having represented the former president, Donald Trump, in the impeachment hearings. He's a proud Jew. Uh, he's committed to Judaism in Israel. And also he's represented uh, Steve Bannon and Julia Hart, among others. Are you still representing Steve Bannon, by the way? Yes. We have, uh, I have a brief due for him to get his conviction in D.C. overturned. It's a very interesting case. It's a contempt of Congress conviction. But the trial judge in the case has identified at least four issues, which he says are likely to re- result in a reversal of the conviction in the case. So that's very, very unusual. So I still represent him. Wasn't there some tension that I read about in the papers? I read about that also. I never <laughs> had any tension with him. But uh, we had a difference of view on how another case of his, a case in New York, ought to be handled. And uh, I had in mind uh, resources that were required and so on. And uh, you know, he had a different view of the case. So I uh, ended up getting substitute counsel for that case. But in the main case, that's taking place. But it sounds like things are moving in a positive direction. I think so. And I, you know, I have an excellent relationship with him. I mean, he's another one that says very nice things about me, and we get along very well and so on. He's a, you know, he's a strong character. No, absolutely. Now, just getting back to the president, the president, you are in constant touch, and he'd like to be part of the team. What would it take for him to convince you to be part of the legal team in his indictment in New York? Well, I have a policy that I've stuck with, and the times I've violated the policy, I've regretted it. And that policy is that if I get into a case that requires a team defense, which most of my cases do, I really uh, insist on being able to put my own team together completely. And I serve as lead counsel in that and, and put together lawyers who I respect and who respect me. And, you know, we know each other. So I've had the great honor and pleasure, I think, of uh, leading a team with Ben Brathman before and Paul Schechtman and some other top lawyers in New York, but we know each other's work and sort of have sort of mutual respect, I hope. And, uh, you know, that, that's the only way I really feel like I can operate effectively. And in this case, you know, he has some lawyers on board already, and, uh, you know, it's up to him to decide uh, how he wants to proceed. And I don't know that it's worth sort of, uh, you know, overturning the apple cart just to allow me to bring in my own team and so on. But that's a decision he'll make, I'm sure, at some point. But didn't he make once before, because during the impeachment proceedings, I think it was a question of you with some other lawyers. You said this on air, and at the end of the day, the president said, you, come on, David, you're going to be in charge, right? Yeah, that was, it happened sort of twice in that case. <laughs> he uh, Originally, I got this call from Mark Meadows and then from President Trump asking me to represent him in the impeachment trial, and he had a team of lawyers in South Carolina on board, very experienced, I thought very good lawyers. And so he then asked me, uh, so I read about that. So I wrote to Mark Meadows and I said, looks like you have your team. Thanks for considering me. He said, no, that was something Lindsey Graham had sort of just leaked, but uh, they weren't sure what they were going to do. So then President Trump called up and asked me if I would lead that team. I said, you know, I doubt they would want that. They're five experienced lawyers and they've never heard of me, but they did agree to it and uh, had a nice relationship. They ended up getting fired in the case, um, but uh, and then some uh, unfortunately put out some bad rumors that they quit the case because they were being pressured to raise election fraud. That wasn't the case. But anyway, after that, he asked me then 10 days before the trial to do it all myself. I said, I couldn't do that. There's too much work to be done. 
too quickly. I didn't have any experience in impeachment before. So then they were supposed to bring on a large firm to do the briefing work and all that. And they didn't. And they brought in this, this other firm. It's got Bruce Castor, who I didn't know, and then his firm. And again, nice folks, but you know, I'd never worked with them before. And so it didn't really work well as a team. And that was, you know, one of the exceptions that I'd made. And I, I learned a big lesson there. But so I think you still, I, you I, still I won firmly that. with my policy. But you still won that case, right? To the impeachment. Yeah, we won it, but I, it would have been hard to lose that case. You know, that was more a political case than a real trial, in my view. And I think we were dead right on the issues. And you know, he had the numbers among Republicans to avoid impeachment. So, but I think in this case in New York, also you have a pretty strong case because it's weak. Yes, I mean, I, I, most people look at this case. Reasonable people, although I, I saw a poll today that says. You know, a plurality of Americans support the prosecution, but I, I don't believe that, number one. Number two, you have people on of all political stripes who have said publicly, this is a huge mistake. You don't bring a case like this against the president of the United States. And there are many legal holes, many factual holes, tremendous credibility problems for witnesses and all of that. You know, we have to wait and see the indictment. They may have piggybacked on here some financial crime type allegations. I don't know. There are 30 counts by all reports, at least 30 counts. Now, that's a little bit misleading because they would make account for every payment that was made. And if you're talking about Stormy Daniels and the McDougal woman, then, you know, you could be talking about several different payments. Michael Cohen, as David Pecker made to the McDougal woman. So I don't know. Just have to wait and see it. There's no reason, by the way, for this thing to still be sealed. That's usually done in a case where someone's a fugitive. They should have unsealed the indictment. There's a great public interest in it. I guess they're waiting for Tuesday. Before usually, they... I mean, not usually. Yes, I think so. They did the same thing in the Bannon case. They waited until just a short time be, on the same day before the arraignment, and then they sprung on them, you know, what the charges were in the case. There's no reason for that. It's just gamesmanship. Just like this thing, you know, leading people to believe the grand jury wasn't going to meet again until the end of April, and all of a sudden they announced the indictment. It's, so, not, it's not a time for gamesmanship. So but what do they hope to accomplish by not leaking or not letting the public know in advance of the actual arraignment on Tuesday. What I really don't know. I, I think it's short-sighted. I see absolutely no legitimate purpose in it. I never did in the Bannon case. We were waiting, waiting, waiting. Why is this thing sealed? Is there some other defendant who's a fugitive? And so on. There's nothing to it. So I don't know what they hope to gain. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure either. But do you think this helps President Trump in his bid for re-election? Um, does it help solidify his base and get more people involved? I, I, yeah, 100%. I mean, the, the polls are showing it. You know, he's doubled some numbers in his lead. I think his base is absolutely energized by this. And, you know, they try to get him coming and going. I mean, they don't want him to protest in any way against this when many, many, maybe most people feel this is a very unfair thing. Nobody has to sit back and take it. Nobody should or can call for violence, that's for sure. But you have to speak out strongly against it if you feel there's been an injustice. Now, we've been talking about the New York case where they're the first to indict, but everybody assumes that Georgia will be next in line to indict. Would you say that's a more solid case? I don't think so, but I do think, you know, many people say that, and, and I do think they'll indict. I've said all along that I think there's no disincentive. The DA here is a very political person. She believes her constituency supports it. She had this sort of phony civil grand jury sit. I don't say phony, but civil grand jury. It's an odd process. Um, but we saw that, you know, they made a farce out of it. The four-person of the grand jury giving public statements about deliberations and so on. It doesn't seem like they took it seriously. And, you know, like almost every grand jury, it's just a matter of what the prosecutor lets them see and doesn't let them see. I was shocked, by the way, you know, in New York, Bob Costello told me when he went into the grand jury, they wouldn't ask him any questions about Stormy Daniels 
They didn't want him telling what he knew all that. That's very disappointing and shocking to hear about a public prosecutor. So in Georgia, I think that, you know, people say sometimes, some people say it's more solid case because, uh, you know, there are tapes and that sort of thing. But um, I don't think the underlying facts are any more solid. I don't think it should be brought. How was the mood of the president when you speak, when you spoke to him or speak to him on a regular basis? I think he's aggravated that, you know, they just go after him and after him and after him. And I, you know, I say to him, listen, you know, the writing was on the wall. 2019, Jerry Nadler said, we can't trust the voters to get rid of Donald Trump. We have to use other measures. And I think this is all part of that plan. Uh, he's been targeted all along. It, it seems some people would say it's short-sighted, you know. Some people say, oh, they should want him to be the candidate and all that. But clearly, they don't believe that. You know, and, and people say, oh, well, don't give me this whataboutism. But there's something to that. There's something to it when you say, well, why wasn't Hillary Clinton uh, prosecuted when she destroyed her hard drive with all of those emails and stuff? You know, that theoretically was for, you know, election interference or to give an advantage in the election and all of that. And so I think I think people are entitled to think there should be an equal application of the law and that that's part of the concept of the rule of law. And they don't see that now. I think people see, you know, get Donald Trump being the ultimate goal. Now, the, there, I think there's two other, three other cases pending, right? You have the Georgia case. You have January 6th. You also have the, doc, the, the classified documents. Right, right. Now, the classified so, documents, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think the classified documents thing has been going on for a while. Originally, you know, I have to say, um, I was called to oversee the, the documents review and all of that business at Mar-a-Lago. And I said, no, it's just not the kind of thing for me. I don't sit and, you know, go through 15 boxes and then make a determination. It's just not my thing. I'm hired generally to take courses, cases to court on trial or appeal. So they asked me about Evan Corcoran, who they ended up hiring him. And I knew him, and he's a very fine guy and former Justice Department uh, lawyer himself. And so I said, I think that's a good choice. Now he's really up against it. Um, he apparently, you know, had some role in certif- certification that went in that all the cl- they believed all the classified documents or documents that had to be returned, whether classified or not, had been returned. So I don't know how that's going to play out. But, you know, I would have thought that that investigation was stymied or that someone would hesitate once classified documents showed up with Mr. B- President Biden and then with Vice President Pence and all that. You know, either mistakes are made, understanding the law is different, or, you know, people genuinely believed. I think President Trump genuinely believed that he did nothing wrong, that he had a right to see these documents, even if other people had told him he didn't. Other people told him he did. So I, I just, I, again, I think it's just an abuse of the criminal system uh, to prosecute that case. But, you know, it's a, just another way to go after them. Um, I, I think you have a difficulty justifying to most people in the public if you were to go after him criminally and then not President Biden and not Vice President Pence. But, you know, people try to draw the distinctions. Oh, they cooperated right away and so on. I think, you know, Trump thought he was cooperating right away also. And besides, the, the fact is, do you have the possession you have in your possession classified documents or not. It's many years later on, so you can say I right. cooperated, but you still had it. So, Right. And some of the charges aren't even based on the classified nature of the documents. They're just documents you know, they're not supposedly not entitled to. Um, you know, in his position, he has the classified documents. He declassified them, had the right to declassify them when he was president. And that's true in a very broad, sweeping way. There are exceptions to it, documents related to atomic energy, nuclear weapons, there's a statute on those things as to how they have to be declassified. But anyway, we'll see how that plays out. January 6th, you know, again, like in the Trump New York case, by the way, this current case was just indicted. Remember, this was reviewed by federal officials and by the Federal Election Commission. 
And they all concluded there should be no criminal case brought. So to have a local DA bring it makes it even more offensive. With the January 6th thing, there's been an FBI investigation. Again, all reasonable commentators have said there's no basis for criminal liability for anything that Trump said or did in connection with that. They take snippets out of his speech, and they take actions by people who believe in him or follow him, and they take people who they've turned the screws to and say, oh, gee, I did this because I thought President Trump wanted me to do it. He's not responsible for that audience. And I, I think it'd be a tremendous uh, perversion of the system to make criminal case over his conduct on January 6th. David Schoen is our guest, famed civil rights attorney, criminal defense attorney, represented President Donald Trump in the first impeachment hearings. I know you're a member of the community, the Orthodox Jewish community, you're a proud member. Have you had repercussions in the Orthodox community or other communities from having represented President Trump, Steve Bannon, and maybe even possibly representing him once again? Yeah, I've never seen anything like it, frankly. Um, first of all, I've gotten plenty of supportive things. I have boxes and boxes full of handwritten letters you know, supporting me, thanking me, and so on. But I get threatening emails you know, on a regular basis. I made the mistake of doing a show on MSNBC. Um, I, I hesitated, and beforehand I asked, why would this host, a guy named Harry Melber, want to have me on? They've, his guests have said nasty things about me on the show. So the producer assured me that he wanted to have a frank discussion with me, so one-on-one. So I said, fine, I'll have a frank discussion. So we did about a 12-minute piece. It was okay. It wasn't frank. I mean, he misled people on a number of things. But afterwards, I got maybe 50 or threatening emails, death threats, insulting. I'm short. I'm fat. I'm bald. I'm a terrible lawyer. I shouldn't be a lawyer, etc. But also, you know, life-threatening emails. So I wrote to the producer, and I said, you know, this is really beyond the pale. You know, I get threatening emails, but 50 in one day from one show. So they're apologetic and so on. And so, but I told them this is a problem. So two days later, I get a call from a journalist. This is just recently. A journalist friend of mine saying, I saw you on TV last night. They were pretty rough with you. So I said, what do you mean last night? It was two nights ago. He said, no, it was last night. This frank discussion they wanted to have, after we did that, the next night they edited it and just played snippets of it with this R.E. Melbourne mocking me. And so that got even more threats. I'm coming after you next and all that sort of thing. I thought that was really irresponsible. And there is, a response. is there any legal recourse, something like that? When they... I don't think so. I just uh, think it's all protected speech. The situations. But it's all protected speech under the First Amendment? Yeah, I think. I mean, not, you know, not the threats. If I, if I really wanted to pursue them, some of them I can identify. One of them put his email. One of them put enough identifying information that I could figure out where he was, where he works, and all of that. And so, you know, some of these things get reported to the authorities. But, you know, these are real crackpots, and they have nothing else on their but to do with their time and threaten people. And I'm not the only one they're threatening. We live on fortune where you and I discussed before you are a civil rights attorney. You represent people that are unpopular. I remember you had uh, a, 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 a terrorist on trial that you still represent, even though you abhor his beliefs, you're a proud Zionist, but we've lost that ability in this country is that if people don't, we only associate and want to defend people who think like us. Anybody thinks differently. We no longer represent, no longer defend. That's out the right. window. Right. Alan Dershowitz, I think, is maybe the most, most forceful advocate, uh, at least for the past several decades, on that front. That is, you know, representing people who you may not agree with, but you think have some important constitutional issues involved in their case, or they're so unpopular, no one would represent them, and somebody needs to step up uh, in order to make the system work.
Absolutely. Before I let you go, one of the, your one of the most interesting people you've represented recently is Julia Hart from the Netflix mm-hmm. series. She was Orthodox. She's she's now involved in a messy divorce case with a billionaire. Um, you were you were representing her for a while, but I believe you're not currently doing so. Correct? Right. I'm not anymore. I did for maybe five six months. Um, had a nice relationship with her. It just wasn't my kind of case. I think she's absolutely right on the merits of her case. She has several cases going. She has a divorce. She has a fraud case going. She has a defamation case against her former husband and his lawyer, Lanny Davis, and others. And uh, I, I think she happens to be right on the merits of her case. But I think, you know, other lawyers are better at the kinds of cases that uh, she has to raise. And so I sort of withdrew from the case and had other counsel in the case. Any other interest? I'm, how do you do it all? Because you, you're able to juggle you have so many interesting cases. Each one itself can keep you occupied uh, 40 yeah. plus hours or more, right? Yeah, I work pretty hard. Um, but I try to, you know, do the best job I can with each case. I only take a few cases at a time, but, you know, they're all pretty taxing and I do all the work myself. So um, not necessarily an efficient way to do it. Um, but uh, yeah, I had this discussion, you know, I, nine days before he died, I'd agreed to represent Jeffrey Epstein. And uh, he, again, had a team of very well-respected lawyers and all that, but he hired me to either see if they would you know, accept me as the lead counsel, and I doubted they would, or to bring in my own team. And so I already formulated my own team and all that, but you know, that required a commitment. So sometimes when I take these cases in New York, I take an apartment up in New York, I move up there, and I work there three, four days a week and just focus on that case on, during those days pretty much. Well, so thank you for all that you do. I know that uh, you were a strong supporter of Israel, and uh, you have some interesting cases. And I know that uh, if I was a betting man, I would say there's probably a good chance that you'll end up on the team with President Donald Trump. He's very persuasive, and I know he likes what you do. So I wouldn't be surprised if he gets me convinces you, right? I can tell you this. He's calling me right now as we talk. I better get off and take that. Anyway, David, thank you so much for being with us. All right. Take care. There it is, prominent civil rights attorney, criminal defense attorney, representing President Donald Trump in his impeachment hearings. And as you heard, he very possibly, very likely, might be part of the current team regarding his indictment in New York. David Jung, thank you for being here with us. One of the most important Jewish institutions in the world today is Talk Line with Zeb Brana. He is so smart and he is so innovative and he has so many interesting guests I don't know what Yiddishkeit, I don't know what New York, I don't know what the world would do without Zev. So Zev, Yashikoch, may you go from strength to strength and keep, keep informing us and educating us and keep fighting for Jewish values. Thank you for tuning in to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast, the pulse beat of the Jewish community. For continuous Jewish programs, hawklinenetwork.com or our 24-hour-a-day listen line at 641 741 0389. For past shows, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms or jewishpodcast.org. Thanks for listening to the talklinenetwork.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.